What's up everyone? It's good to be with you again. Welcome to episode 13 of Ask Abhijit. Today I answer your questions about astrophysics, space and the universe. And as always, you guys have asked me a great great deal of questions, very interesting questions. And I have picked a bunch of questions out of those which hopefully represents a wide spectrum of topics that will cover the whole range of uh, issues in astrophysics and cosmology and space and the universe. So let's get right into it with question number one. So Aditya asks, can gamma ray bursts and magnetars wipe out the entire life from the earth? That's a good question. So let's first discuss what gamma ray bursts are, what are magnetars. So a magnetar is an it's it's a neutron star that has an extremely powerful magnetic field. What's a neutron star? A neutron star is the collapsed stellar core of a supergiant star that went supernova. And it the, the parent star typically has a mass of about 10 to 25 solar masses. And the neutron star typically has a mass of about 1.4 solar masses and a radius of about 10 kilometers. So it's an extremely dense, extremely compact object. And a magnetar is a highly magnetized neutron star. It has an extremely powerful um, magnetic field, typically about 100 million times the strength of the most powerful man-made uh, artificial magnet. So that's what a magnetar is. Now, are magnetars responsible for gamma ray bursts? Not really. Those are not the real pre, pre uh, progenitors of gamma ray bursts. So let's go into what is a gamma ray burst. A gamma ray burst is the are gamma ray bursts are some of the most energetic events in the entire universe. So it's a very powerful flash of light, mostly gamma rays, and the luminosity, the the amount of light that is emitted. So it emits about in it emits in just about ten seconds or so more light than the entire sun will emit during its entire lifetime. So that's how incredibly energetic a gamma ray burst is. So typically there are three different kinds of gamma ray bursts. Very short duration gamma ray, gamma ray bursts, typically of the order of milliseconds. Then there are medium to long duration gamma ray bursts from uh, about a second to about 10 seconds to maybe 100 seconds. And then there are longer duration gamma ray bursts. So the ones we are talking about, the vast majority of gamma ray bursts are these uh, short duration, medium duration ones, about 10 seconds or so long, approximately 10 to 100 seconds, typically 10 seconds or so. So how are these gamma ray bursts uh, formed? What What is the origin? Typically, it's the supernova explosion of, uh, of, a, of a super giant star. So that's typically what gives rise to these gamma ray bursts that, uh, that are of the order of 10 seconds long. And when a star like this goes supernova, it emits these uh, these beams of light. So let me show you what it looks like. Uh, so this is an artist's representation of a gamma ray burst. It is a star that has gone supernova and it's emitting two beams of radiation in opposite directions. It's aligned along the axis of rotation of the star. So that's what it typically looks like. These are extremely energetic beams of radiation. Uh, it contains all kinds of radiation, but typically the most powerful, uh, the most significant component is gamma rays. 
the explosion also gives off lots of neutrinos and things but these two collimated beams of of radiation are mostly composed of gamma rays so let's go into what are gamma rays so gamma rays are the most energetic uh, elect uh, form of electromagnetic radiation it's a penetrating kind of electromagnetic radiation uh, a gamma ray typically has uh, millions of uh, possibly millions of times more energy than visible light and its wavelength is extremely short so the consequence of this is that you cannot reflect gamma rays of mirrors the wavelength is so short that it goes right through mirrors it goes right through living tissue and it can cause a great deal of radiation damage to to living tissues which is why these are extremely hazardous uh, uh light rays so these are invisible obviously and uh, they can cause a lot of damage typically you need to shield yourself from gamma rays using something like lead which is very thick and which has a great uh, amount of density so gamma rays are on earth emitted from various radiation processes from the from the uh, radioactive decay of atomic nuclei etc and that's what you find in nuclear reactors so that's why you need all this radiation shielding so it's very dangerous to human beings it can cause uh, damage to your dna to your bone marrow to internal organs so that's why it's very hazardous so this uh, event so how was it discovered so in the 1960s the americans sent up satellites uh in earth orbit and the purpose of the satellites the vela satellites was to detect uh nuclear tests anywhere on the planet so a nuclear test usually has a very typical signature it's a double flash signature it's a very powerful initial flash of light then it is followed by a slower and and uh, increase gradually increasing uh, afterglow of, of radiation so it's a very interesting very typical double flash event so that's what these uh, satellites the vela satellites were designed to detect and they were equipped with uh, with x-ray detectors gamma ray detectors and other such instruments so what these instruments uh, what these satellites found was they found strange flashes of gamma rays strange gamma ray bursts coming from outer space and there was no possible there was no explanation for that at the time and this was a classified uh, uh, deal these satellites were classified their data was classified so it was not revealed to the scientific world until the mid or early 1970s by which time it was found that these events happen from time to time in outer space eventually it was detected that these are extra galactic events these events don't happen in the milky way they they occur very very far away in far off galaxies and their distribution is isotropic which means it doesn't come from any particular direction in space it's spread all over so now we have a better understanding the gamma ray bursts we are referring to the short to medium duration ones uh, they are uh, they originate in these supernova explosions of uh, uh, of these super giant stars so there are two beams of light so if the earth were to come in the path of one of these beams it could affect the earth if the gamma ray burst was nearby maybe within uh, a 1000 light years or so or maybe less so if it is at a reasonable distance from the earth it can definitely uh, cause uh, cause some changes on the earth the first thing is if a gamma ray burst were to hit the earth straight on one of the beams then within seconds it will destroy a significant portion of the ozone layer of the earth so at least half of the ozone layer will be gone within seconds and it will not affect uh, the surface it will not have an effect on the surface of the earth directly or immediately but it will wipe out significant portions of the ozone layer 
and uh, that will cause a great influx of ultraviolet radiation on the surface of the planet which will have dangerous and bad effects on life on life on the earth and also the uh, destruction of the ozone will also have a different effect in the chemistry of the atmosphere it will react with nitrogen it will cause it will uh, create nitrous oxides and dioxides which are gases that have a long term cooling effect because they they produce a kind of smog that covers the planet so you could have a kind of uh, uh, an induced winter the kind of winter you have after after an asteroid impact event that sort of thing so it will have long term effects it won't have immediate effects on uh, on life but it could possibly and conceivably cause a mass extinction event of some type so it is believed that some mass extinctions in the past may have possibly been triggered off by a gamma ray burst event so that is the answer it can possibly affect life on earth but most likely such a gamma ray burst would have to be directly aimed at the earth which would be a very well it would be just bad luck if that would happen and it would need to be somewhere within our own galaxy because it needs to be close by for the uh, intensity of the beam to be to be significant enough to cause all this damage so yes possibly it can uh, it, it definitely has the potential to cause significant damage to the earth i don't think it can wipe out the entire life of the earth but it can certainly trigger off uh, an extinction evil event on some scale so that's the answer it's a good question this is from meenakshi in a session you explained about cosmic strings and that all galaxies might be connected through them maybe from the supermassive black holes at the center but as the universe expands and these galaxies go far away from us will they still be attached to the strings do the strings ex expand as well also can one galaxy be connected to more than one galaxies at a time and uh, it was after a video okay so what i referred to is uh, cosmic strings which are a kind of topological defect let's not go into what that is it's essentially a defect in space time itself it's a wrinkle in space time so to say so according to string theory these uh, cosmic strings topological defects could have been created in enormous quantities in the very initial moments after the big bang so these are defects in the fabric of space time itself these are wrinkles in space time let me illustrate what it means so let's say you have a cosmic string it's maybe one atomic diameter thick it's very very thin very very thin but it is a wrinkle in space time so if you have a cosmic string this way and you want to take a you want to start from point a and go all the way around it and re return to point a then you will find that you have not traversed 360 degrees you have traversed a distance that is less than 360 degrees because this is a wrinkle in space time itself it it warps and and distorts space time so going around it you will find that you have traversed less than 360 degrees and still you have reached the initial point so that's the kind of defect it is in space time itself and it is a, a warping of space time a a, a wrinkle and these effects also uh, cause gravitation because gravitation is the curvature of space time so cosmic strings are massive they have mass they have gravitational effects they can cause gravitational lensing they can split a star in two if we are looking at it through a cosmic string etc 
So that's the kind of effect a cosmic string has. Do uh, have we found any thus far? We have thus far not observed any evidence of cosmic strings, but it is a possibility. These may exist, and like I said, these emerged. These may have uh, been created in the initial, very initial phase after the Big Bang. And as the universe expanded, these strings stretched out in all directions and they would still be around. So these cosmic strings would be probably be larger, uh, longer than the radius or diameter of the observable universe. It's possible, yes. And these are very tightly stretched strings. They are vibrating and causing gravitational effects if they exist. So that's what a cosmic string is. Now, I uh, what's believed by some people is that uh, Cosmic strings could basically be at the center of wormholes. So every cosmic string would have a wormhole around it. And these wormholes would, would remain open because of the presence of the cosmic string within. Typically, a wormhole is something that snaps shut, shut because of uh, the, the way space-time is. Space-time wants a wormhole, if it can be created, to immediately snap shut and pinch off. So it's very hard to have a wormhole that remains open that you can actually traverse it. So that's the Einstein-Rosen bridge that snaps shut immediately, almost immediately. It wants to snap shut. So the main problem with wormholes is to create a traversable wormhole. And for that, you need something like negative mass or something, which will repel space-time and you know keep the wormhole open. So that sort of uh, substance doesn't really exist as far as we know. But a solution could be these ancient topological defects called cosmic strings. Those could keep wormholes open. Now, the other thing is that some Physicists believe that these uh, supermassive black holes that are at the center of most galaxies, these could actually possibly be wormholes, portals to another dimension or to another region. Not to another dimension, but to another region in space-time, maybe a far-off region. So it could connect to very distant regions of space-time and you could traverse this wormhole and reach that other, other location almost in very little time. And if there are cosmic strings that, uh, strings that are threaded through these wormholes, then maybe that's what keeps them open. So this is all hypothetical. We have no evidence of it. But theoretical physics does allow this sort of um, an eventuality. So that is essentially what I was referring to. Uh, if these uh, supermassive black holes are actually wormholes. Now, can one galaxy be connected to more than one galaxy at a time? We don't know. It is. It may be possible. It may not be possible. If it's a wormhole, will it definitely have at least one location to which it is connected? Can a wormhole connect to two more than one place at a time? I'm not sure that is possible. But at least there's a one-to-one -one opening, one-to-one uh, -one correspondence between one wormhole, between the opening and the exit of a wormhole. So that's in short about this question. It's an interesting question. But like I said, we have never actually observed. We don't have any observational evidence of cosmic strings. People have been looking for them, uh, primarily via the gravitational lensing effects they would have, because mass basically warps uh, mass. Uh, the presence of mass makes light travel in curves. So light is no longer able to go in a straight line. When you have a mass, the, the path of life, light itself is curved. So that causes this effect called gravitational lensing in which stars and galaxies are seen from the Earth as being distorted in shape because of the presence of some mass between us and that particular star or galaxy. So if a cosmic string is between us, directly between us and a star, then maybe we could see a star split in two 
for some time. So people have been trying to look for that, but thus far we have found no evidence. Maybe it means that these may be quite rare or maybe few and far between because the universe has expanded to such a great extent that this initial collection of cosmic strings has gone off in all directions. So maybe it's hard to observe. And as I say, it's very thin and uh, that could be another reason. So we don't know if they really exist, but according to string theory, these could exist and these could have been formed in the early universe and they could still be around. So that's the answer. Good question. Shreyas asks, why are all planets and stars round? Why not square or triangle or rectangle? It's a silly question, but I'm very curious. And this education system kills curious minds. It's not a silly question. It's a great question. It goes to the heart of what gravity is. So that's what we find everywhere we look. All planets that we know of are roughly spherical whether it's a, these are rocky planets or gaseous planets like Jupiter, Saturn, etc. Even most of the, even all of the moons or most of the moons that we know in our solar system are roughly spherical. The asteroids that we observe are of all shapes, right, and sizes. Most of them are not spherical except the very largest asteroids like Eris, probably. There is this uh, planetesimal or planetoid in the... Uh, Trans in the in orbit beyond Pluto, it's called Haumea, I think, which is oblong in shape. So it is not very large. And if we look around the universe, all stars are spherical. Our own star, the sun, is spherical. And exoplanets that we have discovered are also spherical. So what's the reason for this, right? That's the question. So the reason is gravity. Gravity is a force. So if you have a, an object... Gravity is something that is concentrated in its center of mass. So every object has a center of mass and the effective mass of that object is concentrated. You can It can be thought of as being concentrated in that center of mass. And the larger an object gets, the more powerful its uh, self-gravitation is. And this gravity tries to create the most efficient shape possible by pulling all parts of the object towards the center. And the most efficient shape is a perfect sphere. Now, when an object is small, then its atomic structure, its molecular structure, the bonds within the molecules, etc., they overpower the force of gravity and therefore it retains its shape. Right. So the everyday objects in our life, they have non-spherical shapes because the uh, the other forces overpower the force of gravity, which is the weakest force that we know of. But when you have an object that is large enough, around a thousand kilometers or so in uh, radius, then you find that the force of gravity eventually overcomes all of this. Uh, you will still have chunks of rock and all that that are of all different sh shapes and sizes, but the overall shape of the object becomes more and more uh, idealized. It, it tends towards becoming a proper sphere. That's because the mass, the, the mass essentially is concentrated in a way at the center of the object, in the, in the center of mass, and everything is pulled towards that because of the force of gravity. That's why it overly that that's why it eventually over time, especially if it's large enough, it slowly coalesces into a into a spherical shape. So that's very easy to see in uh, in gas, gas planets, gaseous planets like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, etc. And even when you have rocky planets like the Earth and Venus, etc., because of the large size, 
the this the the force of gravity overpowers the other forces and arranges the distribution of matter in a roughly spherical shape so even today the earth is not perfectly spherical it's like a squashed it's like a squashed sphere it has bulges etc but overall from far it does look more or less spherical so that is the reason why uh, planets are not triangular or rectangle a planet has to be something that whose uh, internal gravity uh, forces it to assume a spherical shape that's one of the definitions of a, of a planet so that's what it is uh, it's the effect of gravity that causes this spherical shape to to uh, emerge over time especially if the object is large enough then it will very quickly become spherical if it is smaller then it may take some time but today the solar system is about four and a half billion years old so everything has become spherical whatever could and that's the answer to your question that's a that's a good question it's not a silly question akash asks what are solar sails can we build one uh, in large enough to transport humans and what are the speeds it can attain and how will it help us once we get farther away from the sun so a solar sail is a technology that could uh, become a reality very soon so it is essentially a very thin very light sail like structure typically made of a very highly reflective material metal all, uh, usually and it essentially works by the transfer of momentum from the electromagnetic field into the the sail itself so it basically gets a physical impulse from the uh, from photons hitting it so that's what a solar so solar sail sail is it's it it works on the base because of radiation pressure so radiation like light effects a physical pressure on objects especially highly reflective objects especially objects that are that are very light so let me show you what a solar sail looks like so this is an artist's uh, depiction or representation of a solar sail it's a very thin uh, structure very light and and it's highly reflective so there is this uh, there is a project being uh, which is underway right now it's called uh, breakthrough star shot so this project uh, hopes to use this solar sail technology and send very small probes all the way to our nearest star which is uh, alpha centauri and there is a this exoplanet around this this star system which is called proxima centauri b so this project hopes to send a, a large number of probes to this planet using this technology so these will be very small probes maybe a gram or two in size these are like basically chips computer chips but they will have some uh, instruments on them very basic instruments which would hopefully once they reach there be able to send us data or images back uh, to earth so the technology is that we will have about a thousand of these probes each solar sail will be a few meters uh, across and it will contain this little uh, chip sized uh, uh, nano satellite or nano probe of sorts and these will be will, will be accelerated to about 15 to 20% of the speed of light using lasers so either ground based lasers or space based lasers in orbit around the earth will will fire beams of laser light at these probes one by one and within 5 to 10 minutes accelerate them to around 10, 15 to 20% of the speed of light 
and that's how these thousand or so probes will go all the way to that star system why thousand because many of them could get destroyed or damaged on on the way because of impacts with cosmic dust so that's why a thousand of these probes will be sufficient hopefully to reach there at least a few of them in one piece and send back some useful data to us so this should be able to reach there if we do it today in about 20 to 30 years and then another four and a four or so light four or so years for us to get the signals back from there so this is a technology that is almost possible we need some improvements in our existing technology to make it possible but it could be this this project could actually take off in about a decade or so from today so this is a very uh, a technology that is very much feasible it's only a decade or so away from today we need to improve certain uh, engineering and technolo technological uh, features, but it's very possible. Right now, we are in a position to send these very small, tiny probes to another star system. But in the future, as the technology improves, we should we could very well be possible. It it could very well well be possible to send human beings as well, which means basically you may have larger spacecraft which can hold humans or a number of humans, which could be transported on the basis of this solar sail or photon sail or light sail technology so that's what us that's what a light sail is it's a very interesting technology it is very much feasible and it could happen soon so it's one of the ways one could uh, travel across uh, space it can uh, it can transport uh, payloads to a significant uh, percentage of the speed of light 10 to 15 to even 20% possibly so that's, the, so that's the best we could have as of now because chemical rockets can't attain such speeds. So this is the best technology, uh, potential technology that we have as of today that could enable us to cross interstellar space and reach another star system. So interesting, very interesting technology. Okay, Gaurav asks, what is the temperature of the moon and why does it fluctuate so much? So the moon, the temperature of the moon, like you said, it fluctuates a lot. When See, the moon rotates around its axis once in about 27 days. So about 13 and a half days, each side of the moon is in sunlight. And about 13 and a half days, it is in the darkness. So the day is 13 and a half days long. And the night is 13 and a half earth days long. So when sunlight is incident on the moon's surface, the temperature is about 123 or so degrees Celsius. And when the surface is in darkness, the temperature goes down. The temperature goes down to about minus 170 something degrees Celsius, 173 or 75 or thereabouts. So that's the kind of temperature range you have. And the moment sunlight uh, it turns off when the moon rotates and the sunlight is no longer uh, available, then it almost immediately goes from 127 to minus 173 degrees, almost instantaneously. So why does this happen? It's because the moon has no real atmosphere whatsoever. On the earth, we have this atmosphere which traps heat. And that's why you have a much milder change. That's why you have much milder and much gentler changes in temperature, the seasons, as well as day and night. You have only a few degrees of difference between day and night, typically. On the moon, it's a, it's a tremendous difference between day and light, day and night. It's because of the lack of any, any real atmosphere on the moon's surface. There is a very thin, tenuous atmosphere 
a few atoms and molecules zipping around. The total mass of the atmosphere of the moon may be 10 metric tons or so. So it is, uh, it is extreme. It, it's basically negligible. You can regard it as a proper vacuum, the surface of the moon. So that is the reason why the temperature is the changes in temperature are so drastic between day and night on the moon because there is no atmosphere which traps heat. So that's the answer. Good question. Okay, Aditya asks a very good question. What is the theory of relativity? So the theory of relativity essentially is a theory of gravitation, a theory of gravity. So relativity came in two phases. In 1905, Albert Einstein put forth the special theory of relativity. And in a, a decade later, after a great deal of work, he put forth the general theory of relativity. So the general theory of relativity builds upon the, the very baby steps he took in the special theory of relativity. So I'll talk about the general theory of relativity, which is the main, which is what relativity actually is. So until this theory came, came around, we had uh, we understood gravity reasonably well. We had the Newtonian theory of gravity, which sees gravity as a force, a force that acts at a distance, it force, a force that acts at infinite distances instantaneously. So it's an instantaneous force, no matter how far you are from a massive object. You will feel its gravity, no matter how far you are, you'll feel it instantaneously. That is how Newton's uh, law of gravitation works, if you can see the equation. So that is how we understood gravity. Now, general relativity says that gravity is not a force. It is the geometry of space itself. It is the curvature of space-time. Mass causes the fabric of space and time, space-time, to curve. And this curvature is what we interpret as gravity, as, the, as this so-called, as this uh, apparent force of gravity. So. According to this theory, the entire fabric of the universe is a four-dimensional fabric. It's called space-time, three dimensions of space and one dimension of time, all integrated together. And that is what we are immersed in. That is the stage or the arena upon which the universe exists. So that's space-time. And everything in, in space-time has a limit, a speed, speed limit, which is the speed of light. So that is something that's hard-coded in the universe. Nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. Not even these ripples in space-time themselves. Even these ripples in space-time will only travel at the speed of time, uh, at the speed of light, I'm sorry, and not beyond that. So that is a very interesting uh, effect. It is a, it's, a, it's a very, very significant difference from what Newton said. So let me illustrate this by doing a thought experiment. So this here is a, a toy model of our solar system. We have the sun at the center and all the planets around it. The sun should be much smaller, but you get the point. So according to Newton's theory, this star at the center, right? The star at the center here, it exerts a force, an attractive force on all of the planets. And it's an instantaneous force. It's a force that acts all the way out to infinity. Now let's assume for a second that Let's do this thought experiment. Let's suddenly switch off the sun. The sun suddenly disappears all of a sudden for whatever reason. It's a thought experiment. We can do anything. So let's assume that I switch off the sun. I make it disappear. Then what happens? These planets are all going round, round, mostly round around the sun. And since the sun disappears, this force it was exerting on all the planets instantaneously disappears. 
and what will happen is all the planets will fly off in all directions right that's what will happen instantaneously at the same time all the planets will disappear will go off in all different directions in various parts of space that's what will happen according to the newtonian theory of gravity now according to einstein's theory general relativity if the sun were to disappear it would take 8 minutes for earth to to know about it because the speed of light says that it takes about 8 minutes roughly 8 minutes for light from the sun to reach the earth so if the sun were to disappear we would not know about it for 8 minutes and it's only after 8 minutes that the gravitational effect or or the sudden gravitational disappearance of the sun would be uh, would have an impact on us so it's only after 8 minutes that the earth would fly off and it it would take longer for the other planets like jupiter and saturn to know about the fact that the sun has disappeared and only then would they start flying off in different directions so that is the difference my friends between newtonian gravity and general relativity general relativity general relativity like i said it treats uh, uh the fabric of universe as a four dimensional space time and this is the difference between general relativity and newtonian gravity general relativity is much more accurate than newtonian gravity uh we can still use newtonian mechanics to send a rocket to the moon and bring it back safely we can send people to the moon and bring them back safely without using general relativity using just newtonian mechanics so it is pretty accurate but there are certain uh, phenomena that it can't ac- account for and that is where general relativity comes in it is an improvement a significant improvement on newton's theory of gravitation so that in in very brief is what relativity is it is a theory of gravitation it is an improvement upon newton's theory of gravity and things such as gps and much more would not have been possible had we not discovered general relativity so that in brief is what it is good question sir akash asks uh, do you think dyson spheres are scientifically possible to build even if a civilization develops immensely so def- there is definitely uh, nothing in the laws of physics that would prevent a sufficiently advanced civilization from bu- from building a dyson sphere so let me show you what a dyson sphere is This is a hypothetical artist's representation of a Dyson sphere. It is a sphere that envelops an entire star. It is a monumental piece of of engineering. It is a sphere that envelops an entire star. This thing will close around the star and it will be basically basically be able to harness the entire energy output of that star. So that's what a Dyson sphere is. This is a hypothetical representation. This is another hypothetical representation of a dyson swarm kind of uh, structure being constructed around a star so the the objective of such a hypothetical structure is to harness the total energy output of a star so you would need to be a very advanced civilization to be even able to think of constructing something like that so it's a very uh, you would need to be a very advanced civilization there is nothing against the laws of nature against the law in the laws of physics that says we can't build it but can a civilization reach that uh, level of advancement well we are nowhere near it we are not nowhere near near even being able to harness the total energy of our own planet we can't control the weather and there are so many things that we have no control over 
we are trying to do it we are doing a very bad job of it right now but uh, so we are very far from it is it possible theoretically certainly so there was this uh, thing in the news uh, a star that was that was uh, exhibiting very erratic patterns of dimming and brightening it's called tabby's star tabby's star uh, i don't have it here open somewhere but uh, look it up it's called tabby's star it's a star which is about a few hundred light years from the earth and it has this pattern or non pattern of erratically brightening and dimming the dimming affects about 27% of the light output of the star so that that is very considerable dimming and as of today we have no we have no uh, proper explanation of what could be the process that is causing this erratic dimming and brightening up of the star so if there was some large planet or swarm of dust or swarm of comets orbiting the star then we would, this dimming and brightening would be periodic it would be periodic and we we, could, we would be able to predict it but in this in the case of the star it is not predictable at all uh, in 2017 or 18 it uh, this this these events were very uh, Uh, the, the brightening and dimming was very marked very noticeable right now it's not there much at all so it is a very erratic pattern and some people have hypothesized that somebody is building a dyson sphere or dyson swarm or dyson ring around this particular star and that possibility has not yet been ruled out because there is no well accepted uh, natural explanation of what's going on in that star so that could be a possible candidate possible candidate there's a small chance it could be something like another another civilization creating uh, constructing something some, something around the star we don't have proof it's a hypothetical possibility but it is a certainly a possibility that is being considered so that's the deal it could be possible but we have never observed any real evidence this is possible tentative uh, perhaps evidence that perhaps something like that may be going on but perhaps there is a nat- natural explanation too that we are still not able to figure out so yes it is a possibility but it is uh, it is not anywhere uh, possible near 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 to possible for us because we are still so underdeveloped technologically as a species but theoretically yes definitely possible okay loop quantum gravity for a dilettante So that's a good question what is loop quantum gravity so according to, so loop quantum gravity is a quantum theory of of gravitation it's a quantum theory of space time so according to general relativity like i said space time is this four dimensional fabric in which inside which events occur so it is the stage or the platform or the arena upon which various events occur in our universe and even in string theory the space is the background on which strings vibrate one dimensional string strings so this is a new theory it says that the geometric fabric of space time is not continuous it is itself quantized it is made up of discrete quanta of space time bits of space time so that's what loop quantum gravity says and it says that distance itself has a minimum quantity which is 10 raised to minus 20 uh, minus 33 centimeters and this uh, this theory says that time itself is quantized time too has a minimum quantity 10 raised to minus 43 seconds and according to loop quantum gravity lqg the name suggests loops so it says that space time 
is made up of finite loops, extremely small loops. And the intersection of these loops is where these quantum uh, volumes of space reside. Each volume is 10 raised to minus 99 centimeters in size. It's a very, very, very small volume of space. So the intersection of these finite loops is where these quantum volumes of space reside. And in the terminology of this theory, large quantities of these loops of space-time are called spin networks, spin networks. So space is defined by the geometry of these spin networks, of the spin networks. And time is defined by the movements that rearrange the spin network. So time is an emergent property of the geometry of the spin network. It, it emerges when the spin network moves. And this spin network, when it is combined with the, uh, with the quantum movements, that is time. So the spin network, when combined with its movements, is called the spin foam. So time is quantized in the spin foam. It ticks like a clock. And each tick is 10 raised to minus 43 seconds long. And mass and energy distort shapes and volumes of the spin network. So this distorts space and time because any movement of these quanta also affects the time quanta. So time is the movements of this volume quanta. And the distortion of space and time is what we perceive as gravity. So that is LQG loop quantum gravity in a nutshell. It says the whole universe is a spin network. So LQG, loop quantum gravity, predicts a big bounce. It says that the universe will not have a, will essentially bounce back if it contracts. Because, see, according to the Big Bang theory, what we have is that uh, the universe is supposed to have been, have originated as a, as a zero-dimensional point-like structure, a singularity. And according to LQG, uh, the smallest uh, allowed volume of space is 10 raised to minus 99 cubic centimeters. So because of that, singularity uh, is not possible and therefore the universe in the future will contract again and then it will bounce back and, and explode, so to say, or expand violently or very, very, very fast in an event that will look like a big bang. So it predicts a big bounce cosmology. So essentially, loop quantum gravity is able to, in a way, tell you what happened before the big bang. There was a big crunch kind of... Uh, a big collapse, a big crunch. So the previous universe, the previous uh, incarnation of our universe contracted upon itself after a period of time. And it went down to this minimum allowed quantum of volume, 10 raised to minus 99 cubic centimeters, and then it bounced back. So that's what LQG says. Is it proven? No, as of now, we don't have sufficient proof of it. It is a good theory. It is a theory that is taken seriously and it needs to be refined further and it needs to make predictions that are testable. As of now, we don't have any significant testable predictions, but it's a very good and uh, very interesting theory. So that is loop quantum gravity in, in a nutshell. It's a great question. Okay, this is another great question. Do the laws of the universe also change with time? So how do I interpret what you're asking? Basically, what you're asking is two different things. Firstly, do the equations of quantum mechanics and quantum field theory and do the equations of general relativity, do these equations themselves change with time? So that is part one of your question. And part two is, do the strengths 
of the forces of nature change with time. So we know about four forces of nature, uh, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, electromagnetism, and the force of gravitation. These are four forces that we know of. There may be others that we don't know of. So do the strengths of these forces also change with time? That's the, this, so these are two questions you're asking. So as far as we know, the equations that govern quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, and the equations of general relativity, as far as we know, to the best of our knowledge, they do not appear to change with time. So to the best of our knowledge, no to that part of the question. Do, do the, does the strength of the forces, do the strengths of the forces change with time? It appears that it does. So we know that it is known for a fact, I mean, it is known, strongly known, I could I would say, it's known that uh, in the very, so the, so the best theory that we have tells us that in the very initial moments after the, after the Big Bang, all four forces had the same strength. And then various forces decoupled. So that was the, the time when you had grand unification. All four forces were combined into one single unified force. And that is the grand unified theory that everyone is, all physicists are, are seeking. That is, the, that is the end point of physics, so, so to say. One equation that governs the entire universe. So, so at the very beginning, in the very first moments of the, after the Big Bang, it is believed that all four forces had the same strength. They were combined into one single unified force. And then the various forces decoupled and they, uh, they acquired different strengths. And gravitation, the force of gravity, is today the weakest force of all. It is, it is many, many orders of magnitude weaker than the nearest uh, comparable force. So that is what we know. So definitely we know that the strengths of the forces have changed since the initial moments after the Big Bang. Now, what is also known right now is that the strength of the electromagnetic force seems to be different very in, in very small amounts in different parts of the universe. There is something called the fine structure constant. It is denoted by the letter alpha, the Greek letter alpha. So this fine structure constant quantifies the strength of the electromagnetic interaction. So it is essentially a measure of the strength of the electromagnetic force. And over the past decade or so, there have been hints, various observations from observations that the strength of the fine, the, the, uh, the fine structure con constant, which is the number, it, its value may be different to a very small degree in different parts of the universe. So it may kind of uh, indicate that the laws of nature the strengths of the forces may be different in, in different parts of the universe. It is a tentative finding. It is not yet 100% confirmed, but it does give telltale signs or indications that the universe may be stranger than we actually think it is. The laws, this, the forces that we experience here may not be the same forces you may experience in a very far off distant corner of the universe. Maybe there's a north and south to the universe itself with different uh, strengths of the forces. So there is definitely very much a possibility and it's a very intriguing possibility. So that would indicate that there is much more to the laws of nature than we understand. Maybe we have a very basic rudimentary surface level understanding of the laws of nature. So that's a very good question and uh, we need more data to uncover more about this but yes there is definitely the there is definitely data that 
seems to indicate that that uh, the strength at least of the electromagnetic force may vary it may be different in different parts of the universe very interesting uh, question akash again uh, the scientific community is divided on what the interstellar object umuamua was what are my opinions about it so what is umuamua it is an object that was discovered in late 2017 i think october 2017 so it's a very strange object it's it was discovered when it was already it had already crossed the sun it had already gone around the sun it was going uh, away from the sun so here's what this object looks like it is an artist's depiction it's an artist's representation we don't have any real images of this thing but we know it's a general size and and shape so it's about uh, probably around 100 kilometers long it is a thin structure it's a cigar shaped structure and here's what we know about it so we know its size we know it's it's rough shape and we know that after it went round the sun it was on a hyperbolic orbit which means that it it was it is going to escape the solar system it's never coming back which also means that it came from outside the solar system it's an interstellar traveler it's the first object we have discovered thus far which is extra solar in origin it is from interstellar space it is not of our of our own solar system so here's what we know about it we know that uh, it did not have any gaseous tail like a comet would have right and yet when it passed the sun it was going away from the sun it actually accelerated now we see this sort of thing very uh, quite often when you have a comet it gives off gases when it is uh, heated up by the sun's uh, radiation and this ejection of gases can cause comets to accelerate or decelerate or or uh, it can cause their their orbital paths to change so it's very difficult to predict the exact Uh, orbit of a comet because of this reason so you can maybe predict the orbit of a comet for 100 or 200 years at most but then it's it's very very hard to do that so we found that this object umuamua exhibited acceleration but it did not have any gaseous output it did not have any coma it did not have any cometary tail so that is very perplex perplexing there is no mechanism that ex- that explains why this object accelerated away from the sun secondly it is extremely highly reflective it is at least 10 times more reflective than your typical sto- solar system rocky object so some people have hypothesized that it is a solar sail so i discussed solar sails a couple of questions ago so some people have hypothesized this could be a solar sail or a relic from some ancient civilization something that was floating around in space at a very high velocity and we happen to find it so it is highly reflective maybe it's made of metal and maybe it's a solar sail it's its shape is extremely uh, atypical typically you don't find the objects of this shape natural objects of this shape in the solar system it kind of uh, reminds you of either a solar sail solar sail or a spent rocket part like a booster of a rocket or something so that's why some very respectable and serious physicists have uh, propounded the hypothesis that this could have been our first contact with a with 
an extraterrestrial civilization. Now, this object is traveling very fast. It's already too far for us to really do any kind of uh, observations. Uh, a radio telescope was pointed at this object for a few hours, but uh, no signals were forthcoming. So it's a big mystery, but uh, some very serious and very well-respected physicists have put forth the very serious hypothesis that this could have been our first encounter uh, with an extra solar with with an extraterrestrial civilization i think it was avi loeb who's an american israeli physicist who wrote a book about this even so it's a very interesting uh, phenomenon it's a very interesting event and unfortunately we are not in a position to send any probe to meet up with this object because it will take time to design and construct such a thing by which time this thing will be gone so from what data we have we don't have the answer a very definitive answer but yes it is very intriguing and it could have been something possibly from somewhere else something that was created by intelligent beings perhaps so the possibility is there i and do take this possibility seriously but we don't know for sure so that is where we are at with this question Siddhant asks, can a person study astrophysics or advanced physics if he or she doesn't know complex mathematics or doesn't have a mathematical background? Unfortunately, no. Short answer, no. You cannot, you cannot study advanced physics of any kind, any field, without a thorough understanding of mathematics. This is the basic prerequisite for studying physics. You need to, you need to put in the hours and the days and the weeks and the months and the years studying mathematics of uh, ever-increasing complexity. So that's what physicists have to go through. That is the that's the price for admission for being a physicist. You have to study all kinds of math. Basically, it is calculus, differential equations, linear algebra, matrices, vectors, and various other things. You can just purchase a book of on mathematical methods of physics. But you have to start at the very basic level. School, high school, college level, university level, etc. So unfortunately, you cannot really study physics or do research in physics or comprehend real physics unless you put in the time and pay your dues and learn the math. Otherwise, you just have to rely on other people to give you information about physics, like what I'm doing right now or your favorite uh, personal astronomer or astrophysicist. So that's what is that's the deal about physics. You really need to know the math in order to properly comprehend it and to make your to, to come to your own conclusions about it instead of relying on the, basically the opinions or the facts or ideas given by others to you. So you do have to learn mathematics and the mathematics can get really complex at times, especially when you are de dealing with uh, string theory or even general relativity when you have tensor uh, tensor calculus, etc. So that is a basic prerequisite for doing real physics, yes. All right, this is the last uh, question I've selected thus far. Yash asks, please explain Hawking radiation and how will a black hole vanish after trillion, 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 etc. years? So Hawking radiation is a very interesting effect. So what we know about black holes is this. A black hole is essentially uh, an object whose uh, that is so massive 
and so compact and so dense that even light cannot escape from it. Not even light can escape from it, which means that it can, but it can absorb mass and energy. What this indicates is that an object from which nothing escapes, but an object which will swallow or eat up or absorb, absorb mass and energy, which means that an object like this should only be capable of growing larger. It should never be something that can decrease in size. That is our understanding of black holes. That's what, that's what general relativity tells us. Now, what Stephen Hawking found, I think he had visited the Soviet Union and a couple of Soviet scientists told him that black holes, especially rotating black holes, should be capable of emitting radiation. So Stephen Hawking uh, applied uh, quantum field theory to uh, the uh, to the edge of black holes, to the space-time that is around the event horizon of black holes. And what he found was that black holes do emit radiation. So here's one way of looking at it. Let's say I have a black hole, okay, a spherical object. And let's say this is the event horizon here and the black hole center is here. Now we know from uh, quantum field theory, quantum field theory says that the entire vacuum of the universe is made up of fields of various, uh, of, of various kinds. And there is this vacuum energy in there. So the, the vacuum of space is teeming with these virtual particles. Particle-antiparticle pairs are constantly being created and annihilated in accordance with Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So this, this particle-antiparticle pair appears and annihilates very, very, very quickly, very rapidly. So quickly that it does not violate the time component of uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So the entire vacuum of space is actually teeming with these particle-antiparticle pairs, and we have experimental confirmation of this. Casimir effect. So what we know is that you have this in, in uh, empty space. Now at the edge of a black hole, at the edge of the event horizon, let's say a particle-antiparticle pair is formed. Now the, the energy is borrowed from space-time itself, and when the, they annihilate each other, the energy is given back to space-time. So the net change in energy is zero. Let's say a particle-antiparticle pair is formed right outside the event horizon of a black hole and it goes into different directions. And before it can recombine, one of the particles or antiparticle is absorbed by the black hole because it crosses the event horizon. And the other one is then free to go away. Which means that from a virtual particle, it became a real particle, right? Now the energy was borrowed from space. From, from space-time, from, from the vacuum of space. It was supposed to be given back to the vacuum of space. Now what happened is that one particle went inside the black hole and the other particle is now available to us. So we have gained the energy of this particle, which effectively means that to compensate for this energy we gained in violation of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, it means that the particle that went inside the black hole has negative energy or mass, which means the black hole actually shrinks by a little bit when this happens. And that is the process. That is one way of looking at Hawking radiation. The, uh, the actual manner is different. This is a good analogy of how this thing happens. So because of the, uh, the creation and annihilation of particles in space-time, when it happens at the edge of the event horizon of a black hole, you have these particles that escape from it and which we see as a flux of energy and radiation actually. 
and what goes inside the black hole has negative mass. So over time, the black hole slowly over time shrinks. So from, for somebody who is standing or sitting far away and observing a black hole, it looks like the black hole is radiating energy. It is radiating particles. It is radiating. It, it is emitting radiation. And it is this radiation that's called Hawking radiation. This is called black body radiation. Okay, that is a term that you can look up. So an object like a black hole actually emits radiation. And we know that anything that emits radiation has a temperature. So black holes have temperature. The larger a black hole, the colder it is. The smaller a black hole, the more radiative it is and the hotter it is. So the thing is, the smaller a black hole, the more radiation it emits and the faster it emits radiation and the hotter it is. And therefore it gets smaller quicker. So small black holes shrink faster and faster until at the very end it explodes in a burst of Hawking radiation. So that is Hawking radiation. That's what it is. Black holes, even though they are dark, even though they are black, they still do emit Hawking radiation by this uh, semi-classical uh, theory of Stephen Hawking. Have you ever observed Hawking radiation? Thus far, we don't have any real evidence of it. But theoretically, this is what happens. So that is the answer to your question. So how long will a black hole last? Large black holes, they have lifetimes that exceed the current age of the universe. So they could be around forever. And they are so cold that instead of emitting radiation, they absorb the cosmic microwave background radiation and then they grow larger. So black holes beyond a certain size, they are most likely essentially immortal black holes. They will live as long as the universe exists. Smaller black holes have a finite lifetime. They emit radiation. And uh, so you can calculate what exactly the temperature and the lifetime of a black hole is. There's a formula for that. So certain black holes are de facto immortal and some smaller black holes will eventually meet their fiery explosive demise. So that, sir, in brief, is what Hawking radiation is. Now let me take a couple of live chat questions. Let me see what you have. Lots and lots. Okay. Narhari Rao, uh, thank you for the super chat. Uh, Roger Penrose's conformal cyclical cosmology talks about eons, where the end of every eon is also the beginning of another eon. Sounds eerily similar to Kalpas. Can I elaborate? I haven't really studied his theory in, in detail. I think he's written a couple of uh, books about it and some papers. What I understand is that uh, the universe keeps expanding and expanding unless it is uh, until it is almost completely empty. And then you can uh, transform the equations uh, of, of space-time, etc. Uh, in such a way that it resembles a new Big Bang sort of, of sorts. So that's what it seems to be. I, I personally haven't studied this particular specific theory. It's an interesting theory. It is uh, definitely a valid theory of, of cosmology. Uh, so that's what he calls eons. The universe is a very long lifetime after which it, uh, it re-emerges as a new universe, as a new Big Bang. So that's what he calls eons. I'm not sure if it is the same thing as the kalpas. Kalpas are... I am not very clear about the terminology of kalpas. So, so I am not sure whether it is the same thing as that or whether it is similar to that. Maybe what I'll do is I will look up what exactly kalpas are, what the terminology means, and then maybe I can revisit this question and I can also look up Roger Penrose's theory 
conformal cyclical cosmology. So it is essentially the theory of a cyclical universe. There are many other such models. There is also, like I said, the big bounce model in loop quantum gravity. So these are similar models which say that uh, the universe won't expand forever, but there'll be cycles of, of big bangs and maybe big crunches or big bounces and various other, other iterations uh, similar to that. So it's essentially a cyclical model of the universe. And it, in a way, is similar to ancient Hindu cosmology, which also says that the universe is has cycles. Each uh, universe has a Brahma associated with it. And each Brahma has a finite lifespan. It's a very long lifespan, maybe in the trillions of years, if I'm not mistaken. But it does end. So it's a cyclical cosmology, cosmology which is what our ancient forebears uh, thought about and came up with. So if that is what you mean by kalpas, then yeah, it is similar to that. So I will just reconfirm what th these terminologies mean and then maybe I can answer it again in a future episode. So thank you for the question. Okay, I'll take a couple more questions. Ashish asks, uh, what's possible relevance of the asteroid belt versus with respect to chances of asteroid excavation in the coming future? How far is it? Well, if we can get to Mars, then the asteroid belt is just a hop and a skip away from there. It's not really very far from there. So the asteroid belt, uh, like most of us would know, it lies between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. It is most likely the remnants of a destroyed planet. Maybe there was a planetary collision in the infancy of our solar system. And this, uh, the material of this planet was scattered all over and it remains in orbit. And that's what the asteroid belt is. It's a bunch of rocks, space rocks. And it is known that some of these rocks are, are metallic, very metallic. They, they contain great deals of great, um, great quantities of various metals. Some of these space rocks may have more metal than all the metal that we have on Earth itself. So yes, it is a very uh, lucrative future in uh, industry, asteroid mining, asteroid excavation, if we can develop the technology to get there, maybe we can even tug an asteroid into Earth's orbit or something like that, possibly, and extract various metals, minerals, and other resources from it. And uh, so that would be the next big thing in, in industry, in mining. It, it could uh, create trillionaires out of people or, or corporations. So it will most likely happen maybe in the next 50 to 100 years. Maybe it will most likely start in that time period because we will most likely send humans to Mars in the 2030s, if not be before that. I think most likely in the 2030s, we are returning to the moon in just a few years, in the, within the next two, three to five years. So the Americans are planning to send humans to, moon, to, the, to the moon. The Chinese have plans and... Uh, the Chinese are tying up with the Russians. Maybe the Russians will also be invo involved. Now we have these uh, plans with SpaceX to send people to Mars in, by the 2030s, definitely within the 2030s. So the next logical step would be to, to explore asteroids. So I think that we could start doing this by the 2030s or by the 2040s. Definitely, definitely the, the, the beginning will be by 2050, before 2050. 
but it will become of it, it takes time for an industry to grow and mature and to reach a stage where it is uh, commercially uh, viable so i think definitely within this century sometime we could have uh, proper commercial asteroid mining so it's definitely there in the future no doubt about it but it's not something that we will see in the next 10 20 years but definitely within the century for sure okay one more question all right do you think the future has an uh, rahul ragunath asks this do you think the future has an effect on the past just like the past has an immediate effect on the present and future einstein's block universe explored the, explores this einstein gave us the theory of relativity i don't know what block universe is maybe it's it's maybe it's a colloquial way of referring to something i am not familiar with this term block universe uh, the theory he gave us was general relativity in general relativity you have causality you have the possibility of uh, of wormholes which could possibly enable you to travel back in time it is a possibility uh, we don't know yet if it is feasible and maybe there are laws in the universe that prevent such time travel from happening so as to preserve the laws of causality quantum mechanics tells us that there may be no past present or future there may be no causality at, at all so these are all hypothetical concepts right now we don't know because we don't understand quantum mechanics we know how to use it we know how to use the equations we know how to solve problems we know how to create technology with quantum mechanics but we don't know what quantum mechanics is telling us we don't know what what is what it is at its uh, at its very core at its very fundamental level so the universe is a very big mystery right now we don't know if time is an emergent property loop quantum gravity says that time is an emergent pro- property of the geometry and the motion of the loops of space time so this is all out there in the open right now we don't have any definitive answers to the question of past present future the question of what time is time itself is and to the question of whether causality is even a thing or not so these are the boundaries of reality that we are exploring this is why theoretical physics is so fascinating because there is so much that we don't know and that's why we are we, we are looking into these things so that's my answer i don't have a definitive answer for you physics does not as of today have any answers and that's what makes it so interesting all right my friends i am i am done with today we have come to the end of today's episode thank you very much for your wonderful fascinating questions keep asking me we're going to have another session next week and we're going to keep doing this so thank you so much uh, thank you so much i love the questions you've asked and i will see you in tomorrow's episode thank you have a good day have a good night and i'll see you in the next episode bye